All right, please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So we continue to preach verse by verse through uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. And um, I'm excited to preach this sermon to you today because in this text there's some dynamite that's there. And uh, I just believe you'll enjoy, especially when we get to the second half of the sermon, um, uh, looking over some of this... uh, that's so important here. So we're going to go down to verse 12 in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And Paul says this, When I came to Troas to, to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So to one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. In the sight of God we speak in Christ. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Well, we've been tracking the few first the last few weeks, excuse me, with Paul as he attempts to resolve this conflict he has with the Corinthian church. If you'll remember, the Corinthian church was upset at Paul because he had scheduled a visit with them and then he had canceled that visit. So let me just give you quickly the timeline of events like this, and if we do this enough times, you'll have it all memorized. Those of you that are here for every one of the, the sermons. But here, here's the way it is. Paul rolls into Corinth and establishes a church there. He's there for you know a year and a half or so. He leaves and he gets word that there's issues of morality and doctrinal issues that he needs to settle. So he writes 1 Corinthians to them. He's probably, he wrote, actually wrote a letter before that as well. But he writes 1 Corinthians to them. That, that, the first letter we don't have. But 1 Corinthians we do have. He writes a letter to them, tries to clear some things out. Then he hears of an even more serious moral situation within the church. And he feels the need to stop by himself in person and handle the situation. So Paul goes to Corinth and it ends up being a very painful visit for him. He goes there and they're just they're not, they're not receptive to his word. And not only that, he gets confronted uh, by someone publicly and embarrassed. So Paul, as he gets ready to leave, he promises them he will come back soon. He has a second visit scheduled for them. As he's out there, and he thinks more and more upon it, God presses on his heart uh, uh, what's going on, you know, that, that, he, that he does not need to go back there right now because it wouldn't be good for the church. If he was to go back there, it might hurt the church uh, in that way. So Paul writes another letter. This is called the severe letter. This is another letter we don't have, but he writes that letter And he sends it to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church receives that letter. It was a very hard letter. Paul was hard on them. And he uh, called them to fix these moral issues as well as have the brother that offended him repent. And uh, that's the nature of what he had to do. And they responded well to the severe letter. And then uh, uh, Paul now writes 2 Corinthians. But the only problem that's there, even though they repent, they fix some of the situation... Um, uh, they, the Corinthians let it be known to Paul that they were hurt that he had canceled his visit with them. 
and they accused him of making his plans according to the flesh. That's the timeline. That's where we are, why we are, where we are now. And so with, a little, with that little reminder of where we've been, we go to our passage for the day, and Paul gives another good reason why he, why he did not visit them at the time. Apparently, in verses 12 and 13, he speaks of going to Troas for the reason of preaching the gospel. So there's hardly a better reason for, for moving a scheduled visit uh, than to be called away to preach Christ. Evidently, there was a need for Paul to go to Troas. God opens a door for him uh, there. And at the same time as Paul is, as, as is visiting Troas and is preaching the gospel there and intends to spend several months there, Titus takes the severe letter and heads to Corinth with it. So that's at the same time. So tr- Paul's plan had been to preach the gospel in Troas and then after Titus delivers the severe letter, finds out about the response that the Corinthian church would have to that letter, that they would meet again in Troas and talk about the Corinthian response. Um, and so uh, it didn't exactly happen that, that way for them. Uh, he gets to Troas and Titus doesn't make it back. I think I said Titus. If I said Timothy, I meant Titus. Um, and so uh, at any rate, um, and I said all of that in, in setting all this up, because it points to the love that Paul has for the church at Corinth. And that's really what I want to highlight here, the love that he has for the church. Everything that, Paul, that, that the, the church, Corinthian church has surmised about Paul's intentions towards them is overturned by the simple fact that in verse 13, Paul speaks of his disappointment in Titus' failure to rendezvous with him. He says, my spirit was, was not at rest because I could, did not find my brother Titus there. So Paul was distressed because he was anxiously awaiting the response of the Corinthians, hoping to hear that they had turned from their public sins, repented, and been reconciled to Paul. But for whatever reason, Titus gets held up. He doesn't make it to Troas before Paul had scheduled to leave there. It's possible Paul was even planning to visit Corinth, traveling by way of Troas, if he heard good news of their repentance. Unfortunately, he had to resort to Plan B and meet Titus in a different location, and with us, wait a little longer to hear the response, which no doubt would have fueled anxiety in Paul because Paul cared for that church, wanted to see them repent. All of that, saying all this backstory for you, and we could have just went in and talked about some of the words in here and, and, and what we mean. We're just setting up a backstory because it tells us yet again about Paul and his great concern for the local church there in Corinth. Yes, this church, this church that has bucked his leadership, that has questioned his apostleship and publicly challenged him and humiliated him. He loves this church, Paul does. He wants the best for this church. He seeks to visit them. He desires their fellowship. He is ready to forgive them. And I don't have to tell you this, but things don't always go right in the church, do they? You guys know about that? doesn't always go right in the church, does it? Feelings get hurt. Church leadership makes bad decisions. The church membership makes bad decisions. Issues of morality should be addressed, and they're often not. They get passed by. And yes, expectations for the behaviors of Christians should be high, but it shouldn't blind us to the reality that the best of men are but men at best. And too often, people are prepared to cut off the church from their lives and talk about, and talk about the people and tell others how hypocritical the church is over what is sometimes the smallest slides and then sometimes it's not so small the slides aren't that small sometimes they're really big things that happen in the church sometimes there's real reasons why people should be upset over things 
that happened in the church. It could be a big offense like the one that Paul had in Corinth in which he was publicly humiliated in front of people. But that didn't stop Paul from loving the church. And Do you know why? Because he deeply loved Christ. And the church is the bride of Christ. Therefore, he loves the church. In fact, the church is what Jesus loves most in the world today. As imperfect as it is on earth, when we argue about the color of the carpet or have a bad business meeting or we get into our little cliques and seemingly exclude others or when someone is publicly humiliated or when a trusted Christian has a moral failure that cuts us deep and shakes us at the core, these things are an embarrassment to be sure and we need to do better as a church. But in spite of all this, we need to love the church. And we need to never stop loving her because God loves the church, right? Christ stretched out his arms and died for a people uh, that, uh, um, that so often get it wrong. And we need to remember that. When you hold a grudge for, against the church for minor slides, or even if you were severely mistreated as the apostle Paul was, a desire to do away with the church in your life forever and chalk it up as a hopeless cause or as an unnecessary institution that has no impact on your life when you can just stay at home and read the Bible yourself, that's not an option. And the reason is, is that God doesn't give up on the church and neither should you. And if you give up on the church and you find yourself hating the church, I'm just going to say this, you better watch out. That's the church that he loves, that God loves. Even in all of its ragged clothes. Because someday, out of his loving grace, he's going to dress his bride in the bright white clothes of the eternal righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the question for you is if you're one of these that have come to loathe the church, you have to ask yourself if you truly, truly love God. And if you do, you need to pray and ask him to help him help you forgive those that have hurt you and ask Him to help you see the importance of the church, the necessity of the church, your need for the church, and to help him, for Him to help you love the church and make the church a better place for His honor and glory. There's no question the church needs purified. All it takes is a little polling from individuals in the church and you'll find out that uh, we all have something that uh, has bothered us down through the, the ages. But it's the church that Christ loved and died for. What more do you need to know to be pressed into love for this group of people than that Christ loves them and died for them. That leads us to verses 14 to 17, which is a section of Scripture that Paul is using to compare his ministry to the ministry of his opponents that have risen up in Corinth to criticize him and lead the church from orthodoxy into a legalistic and work-based religion. Uh, these new leaders that have crept into Corinth are Judaizers. They've come from the Jerusalem area, presumably, and apparently with letters of recommendation. So they've impressed the Corinthian church. They also seem to have received money from the Corinthian church for their ministry. That pleased them as well. They have criticized Paul's teaching. You'll note that Paul's message of the gospel is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that his message is that Jesus entirely kept fulfilled the law and his perfect life and death. And the Judaizers, they were appalled that Paul did not require circumcision of his converts. 
and that he did not require them to follow the dietary laws, among other things, that the Judaizers were insistent upon Gentile believers um, in Christ that they submit to. So what they basically saw was Paul as a false teacher, and they used everything that they could to slander and discredit his ministry and to cause Christians to draw their doubts about him. And one of those things was the suffering of Paul. Paul suffered a lot. And so they would slip in doubts about God's endorsement of Paul. Because he was always suffering. And he was always being persecuted. And there was always drama in Paul's uh, ministry. And there was always somebody out to get Paul. And it seems that he was opposed in every city that he went to. And this was at odds with what they thought was proof of God's approval of a minister. So these Judaizers, they held a triumphalistic and victorious Christian living. They reasoned that if God was for them, then they would no doubt be successful in their ministry. That Paul's struggles and persecutions were proof for them that God was not with him. And so they used that to attack his authority. So when we look at verses 14 to 17, we see some points that Paul makes about his God-centered and God-blessed ministry that proves that God is on his side. And the way he's going to do it is very interesting. While his critics are going to boast in their letters of recommendation, in the lack of persecution that they face, in their mighty works, in all the things that they do, Paul's going to boast in his weakness. That's how he's going to do it. That's the track that he takes. Let's look at verse 14 again. It says there, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. <laughs> always leads us. In triumphal procession. If Paul's opponents were going to boast of their triumphs, Paul was going to boast in the triumph of God at Paul's, at Paul's expense. Despite the deadly perils in Asia, despite persecution everywhere, despite having written such an emotional letter pleading for their repentance, despite being disappointed in Troas, Paul gives thanks to God even as those things are true about his ministry. And yet God is surely leading him in triumph through weakness. Paul's metaphor here is both triumphal and anti-triumphal. And here's what his imagery is invoking. Listen, when, a, when, a, when Rome would go into a place and conquer you know, this country or uh, this fortified city or whatever, they would be victorious and utterly victorious because that's the way Rome was. You know what they'd do? They'd have this great big parade. And then they'd take their prisoners of war and they'd lead them in triumphal procession as they led them in a parade to their execution. That's what they would do. It was humiliating for them. And the prisoners would be dejected. They'd be embittered as the crowd would jeer at them and they'd hurl insults at them as they go along. And here's what Paul's comparison is. He's comparing himself to the prisoners of war. And it's God as the leader of the conquering army. That's an incredible defense that Paul decides to use here. The accusation from his critics is he doesn't triumph. He's persecuted and he suffers and therefore you shouldn't listen to him because God must be rejecting him. And Paul's response is that it's true that he suffers. And it's, but that it's proof that God is with him because he's being led as a prisoner of war in triumphal procession so that God might be glorified in him. How about that? <clears throat> Isn't that something? 
He's a prisoner of war, led by God. This is the upside-down nature of Christianity, isn't it? That we glory in weakness as the people of God. He gives us the opportunity, doesn't it, to point, our, to point others to God rather than to ourselves. We glory in the fact that salvation is not of ourselves, but by the precious mercy and grace that God has bestowed upon us. We hardly recognize that there's nothing good in us apart from Jesus Christ. That we are wholly given over to rebellion and in the love of our sins had not Christ came into our hearts and conquered us, bringing us, bringing himself to us. See, Jesus is not a gentleman. Knocking, gently knocking on the door of our hearts, just asking and begging and pleading for us. Oh, please, let me come in. No, he's the conquering general. Of the armies of God bursting down the door of our hearts. Flooding our darkness with his glorious light. And taking us captive to lead us into triumphal procession. I'm telling you that's the way salvation is. Jesus doesn't come with a pretty please. Like so many ministers present it. He comes conquering his people. And the great thing is. Is that he conquers through the gospel message. Uh, those that he conquers through the gospel message are led in this procession. And they are not embittered. They're not dejected like the Roman prisoners of war. They are joyful. And as they endure humiliation as the captives of Christ for the sake of God's glory. Our church uh, set up a prayer tent yesterday at the King Cole Festival. And had... Um, Several volunteers show up in intervals, giving an hour or two of their time to pray with people and hand out gospel tracts and free water and, and uh, share the love of Jesus Christ with them. This is our third or fourth event doing this, and we had uh, more people than we've had before pitching in to help, which we're thankful for. But um, what if those of you that weren't there yesterday knew that the people that came by through the gospel tracks back in their faces? What if you knew that they reviled them for wasting their time on a beautiful day asking people if they wanted to pray to a fairy tale God? What if you knew that people came by and were combative in their response to the gospel or they jeered at the volunteers or they spit upon them? Now I want you to know none of that happened yesterday. But if it did, Many of you would be tempted to think that we don't need to do that again. Many of you might think that it must be in God's will for us to do things, if, uh, that it must not be in God's will for us to do things like this if we're going to face so much animosity and conflict. See, that was the thinking of Paul's opposition in the church in Corinth. And yet Paul teaches us that it's simply God leading us as prisoners of war into triumphal procession. Folks, Jesus is a conquering general. But there's a difference in his conquering our souls now and his conquering people at the last day when he comes again in great power and great glory as the rider on the white horse. I don't know how many of you have read the back of the book. But it doesn't look good for those people who get conquered that way. Those he conquers today will gladly follow him in triumphal procession, and rejoice in their humiliation for the sake of Jesus Christ. Those conquered by Christ on the last day will be led away in chains 
through eternal darkness into the fires of hell. Surrender today to the conquering Jesus. Look at the last part of 14 there. Paul says, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So now Paul switches up metaphors on us. And uh, right in the middle of verse 14, as he puts his ministry out there as accomplishing something that the, that the Levitical sacrifice is also accomplished. So that's the idea you're supposed to have in your mind is what the Levitical uh, sacrifices were accomplishing with the aroma. Remember the aroma goes up and is a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of God is what the, the Old Testament scriptures uh, said. And Paul's ministry spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere it goes. And it's his ministry that he's referring to. It's not, not himself. Paul isn't a pleasing sacrifice to God. He, as great as he is, he's just a man. But the ministry of the preaching of the word is spreading a fragrance everywhere it goes and impacting everyone who hears it one way or the other. As Paul preaches Christ, the aroma of Christ, of that preaching, goes up to God and out to the people uh, that hear it. And Paul declares, we are the aroma Christ to God. So those that minister the gospel word and put themselves on the line for the sake of Jesus are like a pleasing sacrifice of the old Levitical order going up into the nostrils of God. So Paul downplays himself yet again as he simply cites himself to be a tool in the hands of God rather than turning around and talking about how wonderful that he is and how awesome his ministry is and how valuable he is and how triumphant he is. And who knows really how the Corinthians will respond to this tactic that Paul's using here in, in, in trying to persuade them, that Paul is simply not going to elevate his greatness like his opponents uh, elevate their importance. He's just not going to do it. He's not going to play that game. Instead, he's going to elevate his weakness and God's power to use weakness. So he's referred to himself as a prisoner of war, being paraded around by God, and now he refers to his gospel ministry as a mere sacrifice. And he agrees with his critics. That he is lowly. But his lowliness is the will of God. And the only way that God will truly use us. Paul's uh, reference to him being a sacrifice. His ministry being a sacrifice. Is related to the suffering he experiences for the sake of Jesus. And he suffers because of the world's hostility to the gospel. Which he proclaims. You understand the world hates your gospel. Right? He hates the, the, the world hates the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much. So much. It hates it. Um, and, so, and so Paul will preach Christ, come what may, and that may bring suffering. It will bring suffering. It may bring death. And that's the hostility of the world toward Jesus Christ. It's a hostility of it. They will jeer at you. You know, you preach a gospel message and, and people will hate you for it. Let's uh, do something here to illustrate Paul's thinking as it relates to the world's response to the gospel. And to 2 Corinthians 2 verses 15 and 16. And I want... Uh, and, and, and I want you to, to put that, if you've got your Bibles, and put that alongside 1 Corinthians 1.18 in parallel to one another. And we'll see here the point that we're trying to illustrate. So let's read that. 1 Corinthians 1.18. And this, this is a familiar verse. You probably remember this verse. This is 1.18. It says this. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice there in that verse. For those, it's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So he talks about the effect of the word in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The effect of the word on, um, on people who are perishing and on those who are being saved. Now go to 2 Corinthians 2.15 again. Read, we'll read that again. It says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things. So the message of the cross, and this is what we get from these three verses, you know, and you put 1 Corinthians 1 and, or, and 2 Corinthians 2 together here. The message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, and it's a fragrance of death to them. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And it's the fragrance of life to them. And that, my friends, is the division of the gospel. It divides the hearers. It divides its hearers into two camps. Those that hate it are, go- are perishing. And those, and those that find it to be an aroma of death to them. So if you hate the gospel, you're perishing. And you find the gospel to be the aroma of death to you. They despise it. Those that love the gospel find in its preaching that it's the power of God for their salvation and the aroma for them is the sweetest aroma of all. And I tell you today that you are in one of two camps regarding this. You are either repulsed by the gospel and it's the aroma of death to you or you are pleased in it and it's the aroma of life to you. One of two camps. There are, there's not a third camp. I remember some years ago uh, going door to door in Del Martin with my pastor uh, sharing the gospel. And a man invited us in and, and we had some nice words and some chit-chat and some nice conversation and all of that. And then as we started transitioning into the gospel with that man, he stood up with tears in his eyes. And I'll never forget this. He started saying, no, 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 no. And he grabbed us by the arms and gently led us out of his home, which is fine. He wasn't aggressive. He wasn't mean or nasty about it. He just was not going to hear the gospel. And what struck me about that encounter was his sorrow. He was familiar with the gospel message. He knew there was truth in it. But the aroma of that message was death to him. Paul is saying here, let the Corinthians understand that the preaching of Christ's gospel may be leading him to suffering. But it's in the sovereign, it's the sovereign God of heaven leading him in triumph, spreading the message of Christ wherever he went as it reveals who is being saved through its proclamation. To those that it's an aroma of death, to they are being led to death. To those that find the gospel to be the sweetest aroma, the gospel reveals. That they are being saved. We're out of time, so we'll look at verse 17 next time. I think it'll flow all right into, as you get into chapter 3. But there may be some of you in here this morning that remember when the gospel was once the aroma of death to you. But now it's the fragrance of life. You can't get enough of it. You want to hear over and over and over again how Christ died for your sins and gave himself for you. You love the gospel story so much you wake up in the mornings and 
either in the mornings or sometimes in the day, you stop and you give thanks. Oh, God, thank you for sending Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins that I might be saved. And you rejoice at the thought of it. Maybe there are some of you here now that the gospel message has been the fragrance of death to you. It has revealed your sins. And it's uncomfortable for you because you don't have forgiveness. And you wish I would just shut up about the gospel and start talking about being nice moral people in the world and about how God just loves everybody. You also know deep down, if you died now, that you die in your sins. I simply say to you that Christ has already conquered. Believe upon him. Cast all your care upon him. Repent of your sins and he will, he will receive you and parade you around as one of his prisoners of war. Does that imagery shock you? Does it offend you? You know, like it. You know, I'd rather hear the family of God's stuff. If it does offend you and shock you and you don't like it, I'm afraid you may not know Jesus Christ. Those that know him are proud to be his captives. Proud to be his captives. Parade me around, O Lord, for the sake of Jesus Christ. I'll be humiliated for his sake if that's what you want. Right? Yeah, love you, God. Serve him. Follow him. Be prepared for anything that comes your way. And don't recant. Don't turn on Christ as he was being beaten and enduring stripes for you. He did not turn back. He did not call 10,000 angels. You go all the way for Jesus. Be prepared to suffer humiliation, the ruin of your reputation for the sake of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you lead us in triumphal procession. And I pray, Lord, that we would be spreading the aroma of that pleasing sacrifice, Lord, the gospel preached. And we acknowledge that for some, it is the aroma of death. But to some others, Lord, those that you've loved, those that you've set your love on, to those that you'll open their hearts to, to those that are your that are your people from the foundation of the world, they will hear and it will be the aroma of life to them. Help us to preach that gospel no matter the consequence. And Lord, if there's someone today that as this gospel is preached, that the aroma of it has become for them for the first time the sweetness of life, may they come and receive Jesus as their Savior today. For he is the great conquering God of heaven. And it's in his name that we pray. And amen. We have a hymn of invitation this morning. Hymn number 177. There's something about that name. Would you stand and sing? And if God calls you to salvation, you know you can come down here and I will pray with you. As we stand and sing. <laughs>